Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you remember how much your first job paid? For many Americans, their first jobs were minimum wage jobs. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics finds 2.7% of hourly paid workers in 2016 earned the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour or less. Who can really afford to live on those wages? There's a movement in states across the nation, including Connecticut, to raise the minimum wage. Connecticut's progressive Democrats, including Governor Lamont, have been calling for an increase of the state minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2023. Coming up, we'll hear what's driving policy changes in our neighboring states. We'll also hear from small business owners, one who has voluntarily raised the minimum wage at some of her restaurants, and another business owner who's concerned about how a $15 minimum wage will impact his family's business. First, what do economists say about the effect minimum wage has on employees, their employers, and on job growth? You can join our conversation as we ask that question of our next guest. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. And if you also work a minimum wage job, we want to hear from you. Again, the number, 860-275-7266. Six, six. Now, joining us from a studio in Charlottesville, Virginia, is Ben Zipperer. He's an economist who studies the minimum wage for the Economic Policy Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that includes the needs of low- and middle-income workers in economic policy discussions. Ben, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Connecticut's not the first state to dream this up. Uh, There's, as I mentioned, a movement in cities and states around the country, including some of our neighboring states. Uh, So we wanted to hear more about uh, what's prompting this uh, broad campaign uh, across the country now, Ben. Yeah, you're right. There there is a broad campaign to increase the minimum wage that has been picking up steam and establishing several new minimum wages in this country at the state level or local level over the last um, set of years. And what is prompting that is there's kind of two, the way I think about it is there's kind of two forces. One is this um, large political movement uh, coming out of what's sometimes called Fight for 15. Um, And uh, this political movement has been very successful in raising awareness about the extremely low wages that we pay certain workers in this country and the need for um, much higher minimum wages for these low-wage workers. So that's kind of one element, this political push. Then there's also another political element that's related to the fact that we really haven't seen a a national minimum wage increase in a long time. The last national minimum wage increase was in 2009, 10 years ago. So the minimum wage nationally has been stuck at $7.25 for about 10 years. And, you know, $7.25, you know, over that time period, uh, because the cost of living has gone up, it's more expensive to pay rent over the last 10 years, more expensive to buy food, health care, et cetera. Uh, that $7.25 is buying less and less over the time over that time period. So the minimum wage has actually fallen over that time period after you adjust for the cost of living by about 15% or so. So that 
kind of low level of the minimum wage and that falling real or cost of living adjusted minimum wage and no action on the federal level, along with the fight for 15 and other political movements raising awareness about low wages are really what's pushing um, uh, states and cities and counties to, and and now hopefully the nation, to raise the minimum wage. And I have to admit, I was uh, shocked when I realized what the federal minimum wage was. Uh, in Connecticut, it was raised to $10 an hour um, after President Obama started to talk about uh, the importance of raising the minimum wage, I believe back in uh, 2013. Uh, but I, I should also point out that uh, $7.25, that's the federal minimum, but in some states, they're making much less. So most states are, are required to, uh, for most of the workforce, are required to um, pay workers what the federal minimum wage is of seven twenty five dollars or more if they have a higher minimum wage. But there are uh, classes of workers um, in our economy that um, uh, are allowed to be paid much less. For example, tipped workers. Um, so workers who earn tips are not required to be uh, paid an hourly wage of $7.25 an hour. And the national tipped minimum wage for those tipped workers is actually $2.13 an hour, which is obviously substantially less. Now, tips are supposed to make up for that. Uh, That's the requirement of the law, but that's very hard to enforce. Um, and so tipped workers um, are, are really subject to uh, lower hourly wage standards as a result. When we think back to the federal minimum wage, like historically, when did it begin and why did it, for some point in time, uh, you know, adjust for inflation and then became stagnant? Right. So the federal minimum wage uh, is coming out of kind of the New Deal legislation of the, in the 1930s. So the first uh, national minimum wage uh, was established in 1938. And uh, at that time, I, I think the minimum wage, if I remember correctly, I think it was you know set at about 25 cents an hour. And after you adjust for inflation, that's about you know something like three to four dollars an hour. And then over the next 30 years, um, until like the 1960s, the minimum wage was raised um, relatively frequently. And also it was expanded to kind of cover the broader set of workers in the economy. When it was first established, it didn't cover the entire economy. And that those increases and those expansions uh, happened relatively regularly and were sizable so that the by the late 1960s, we had what was the kind of the highest minimum wage this country has experienced. In today's dollars, the minimum wage in 1968 was closer to about $10 an hour. Now, since the 1960s, Um, especially starting in the late 70s and 80s, the minimum wage was increased less less frequently. And when it was increased, it wasn't increased that much. And as a result, just like what you were saying, the minimum wage has fallen in value over time. Now, you know, the national minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, which is, you know, something like 25, 29% less than what we paid the lowest minimum wage the lowest uh, wage workers in our economy 50 years ago, which is a really dramatic turnaround that even though the economy has gotten more productive, even though workers are better educated, they're more productive, we're paying the lowest wage workers today much less, substantially less than we paid them 50 years ago. And that, I think, is 
one of the most important facts um, motivating uh, people to be inter in, uh, interested in increasing the minimum wage. Uh, you mentioned uh, in recent years a political push uh, to fight for $15 an hour. Uh, but when we look at in the 70s uh, when uh, the minimum wage really wasn't growing, was there a change in the philosophy of lawmakers at the time? Well, I think there was a there was a very big change um, in the 1970s and the 1980s, where um, lawmakers and em employers um, uh, uh, gained a, 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 a lot of power over um, setting structure of wages in this economy, and doing so in a way that disadvantaged the lowest wage people in our economy. So, kind of around 19. The mid 1970s to late 1970s is, is when you start to see dramatic changes in um, that that we experience today of uh, in, inequality um, taking off stagnant wages for much of the bottom and middle of America. Um, so a lot of uh, changes around that country that um, both uh, uh, reduced the frequency of raising minimum wages, but also affected other things in the economy, um, uh, 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 really started happening around that time period. Uh, you're hearing Ben Zipperer, an economist who studies the minimum wage for the Economic Policy Institute. He's here on where we live as we talk about uh, the changes that are driving uh, some states like Connecticut to think about raising the minimum wage and some of the factors uh, that lead uh, states uh, to maybe push this and wait for the federal uh, uh, government uh, to make a change. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We especially want to hear from you if you work a minimum wage job. Or if you're an employer and you um, have concerns about uh, what it would mean if the state of Connecticut uh, would raise their, their minimum wage to $15 an hour. Again, that number is 860-275-7266. Uh, ben, when we were talking about uh, doing this show, uh, producer Carmen Baskoff um, was telling me that there are just so many conflicting studies from economists about um, what the impact is on employers, on employees. Can we talk a little bit about what the research says? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think some of the it's important to understand that a lot of the um, conflict in academic research about the minimum wage is not about actually um, how large the employment effects of the minimum wage are. It's actually about how small they are. So the minimum wage is one of the most well-studied uh, topics in economics. And if you were to look at this most recent set of studies over the last uh, 15 years or so, what you would find is that, yeah, there's, there's studies that say different things about the consequences of the minimum wage. But on average, if you were to take the average study or the typical study, the employment effects of the minimum wage in the average study are actually quite small. Um, to non-existent, and in 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 particular, they're very small relative uh, to the sizable, consistent wage gains um, that low worker low wage workers um, are observed to receive after a minimum wage increase. Now, that's true of all studies published in the last fifteen years. And in my view, the best studies of the minimum wage actually strengthen that conclusion, that the best studies also show that there are small to no um, uh, effects on employment of minimum wage increases. Uh, when you think about supply and demand, does that surprise people uh, when they, they hear what the studies have found? Yeah, I think it does. And so I think the kind of 
the concern, the theoretical concern is that, okay, well, we raise the minimum wage, that's going to compel business owners to pay their workers higher wages, and that's expensive, and so they're going to cut back on hiring and hire fewer people, and then there are going to be fewer employment opportunities for low-wage workers, and those low-wage workers that we're trying to help, they're going to suffer as a result. So that's the, the theoretical concern about you know, negative employment effects of the minimum wage. But I think it's really important that that's only one half of the story of how a real-world labor market works. So it is true that when you raise the minimum wage, employers hire fewer people as a result. It is more expensive to pay for an hour of labor, so you're going to hire fewer workers. That's one half of the story. On the other uh, side, when you raise the minimum wage, it's now easier, because wages are higher, it's now easier to recruit and retain workers. So there are fewer workers leaving their jobs. It's easier to hire workers. And those kind of two forces push against each other. And it happens to be the case in the U.S. economy that those kind of balance out and there isn't really much of an employment effect at all. So by raising the minimum wage, we actually reduce worker turnover. And that's one way that businesses are able to adjust to higher minimum wages is that they save on turnover costs, which are actually a pretty sizable component of overall costs for a low-wage business. You're listening to Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Ben Zipperer. He's joining us from a studio in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's an economist who studies the minimum wage for the Economic Policy Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Now, as we know, there's a current debate in Connecticut to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So after the break, we're going to hear from two local business owners in Connecticut, and we'll take your calls, too. Join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you think the state of Connecticut should raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour? State Democratic lawmakers and Governor Lamont are calling for an incremental increase over a four-year period. What's your take? You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We've been talking about the factors driving this effort in some states nation, across the nation to increase the minimum wage. There have been numerous studies by economists. Uh, we've been talking to an economist from the Economic Policy Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, Ben Zipper, joining us from a studio in Charlottesville, Virginia. We also wanted to hear from business owners in our state. So joining us now by phone is Cheryl McDonald. Uh, you know uh, her and her husband's restaurants well, uh, co-owner of Bear's Restaurant Group. Cheryl, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, we were interested in talking uh, with you because we know that Bears, a, a couple of years ago, made the decision to raise their uh, hourly uh, wage to $15 for non-tipped workers. Tell us about what, what was going through your mind and your husband's mind uh, when you made that decision. So uh, we actually had just come back from a trip to uh, looking at equipment in Italy. And, um, you know, the restaurants there are, you know, non-tipped employees and, you know, people are in the service industry making a good living and, and making that careers for themselves and just got us started, you know, thinking and talking. And at that point, um, I was working on redeveloping our, our training program, um, making it more robust, putting it online, uh, you know, holding employees accountable. And it just kind of went hand in hand with the idea of, you know, paying a higher wage uh, with the um, 
you know, to give folks a, an opportunity to, you know, support themselves and their families, um, you know, better than they had been. And, you know, theoretically that there would be that reduced turnover, you know, maybe a higher level skilled employee um, that would be, you know, looking to come into the restaurant industry. How many uh, employees are uh, getting at least $15 an hour through your restaurant group, Cheryl? Um, I'd have to say it's well over half of our employees, so probably looking at about 125 to 150 of the employees. And what has that yeah. been, uh, the, what's been the financial impact? Because it's not something that you're doing at all of your uh, establishments? Uh, we, we do it at Bears Smokehouse um, at the barbecue restaurant. Um, and it has had a, you know, it was a, it was a decision that Jamie and I made not in um, to support, you know, the fact that the, you know, we thought that this is something that other business owners should follow suit with or that, you know, should be in, implemented, you know, within the state. This was something that we did personally um, because of what we wanted to do for, for our employees. Um, and I would say it's had some effects um, with turnover, not as much as you would have hoped for. for. Um, and uh, recruitment, uh, uh, but for the employees that we do have, um, it has made a difference in their lives personally. You know, it's, it's definitely um, made a difference. And financially for us, uh, it has a significant impact on our business. So it, it drives other business decisions. And that's where I would become a little bit uh, hesitant, I guess, to say, uh, watching how, how something like a, a incremental increase to a $15 an hour eventually would play and have an effect on, on business owners. Uh, at the same time, uh, offering the $15 uh, minimum wage uh, before a government mandates it, it does keep uh, your businesses competitive. Um, if this uh, were to pass in the state of Connecticut, um, would you think it will be harder for you uh, to keep good workers? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, it, keeping good workers has a lot more to do with the way that you treat your workers when they're at work. So, um, and the culture that you create, um, you know, I, I think for us, we've actually seen better retention as a result of our training programs and empowering our staff and giving them opportunity. So, um, I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't be, um, you know, I wouldn't be hesitant for that reason. No. And Cheryl, uh, one last question. Um, if the minimum wage does go up to $15 an hour across the state by 2023, uh, do you see that having to raise uh, the wages that you're giving your workers? Over I'm 15? Sorry, what was that? Um, if the, if the, uh, the rate goes up statewide to 15, would you then find that you'd have to raise your rates a little bit more for your workers to, to, keep, to keep competitive? Possibly. Um, to be honest, I haven't given that too much thought, but it, it, what it would do is, is it would increase um, for salaried employees and for those, those upper level employees. Absolutely. That I, I would say has actually um, is, is more of a concern, right? Because as you mm -hmm. raise your hourly employees, now you're closing the gap between that and what you're paying your, your management and that become that, that's a, a fine uh, thing to balance. Well, Cheryl McDonald, again, is co-owner of Bears Restaurant Group. Uh, Cheryl, uh, thank you for uh, giving us a call for just a few minutes. Uh, before you go, um, if lawmakers are listening, um, what would you advise them as they debate this, this session? 
I would advise them to get out and talk to as many small business owners as possible. Um, and not just small business owners. I think, you know, a- any business is going to be affected by it and, and understand where are else would there be an impact for them? It's not just the bottom line of the payroll, but you know what other decisions are going to be. If, if you if you give to one area, you have to take away from another, and you know where are those where are those areas really going to be affected. Well, thank you again, uh, Cheryl McDonald, uh, co-owner of the Bears Restaurant Group. Uh, this is where we live as we look at, again, uh, this debate of raising the minimum wage here in the state of Connecticut. We wanted to bring in uh, another business owner to talk about uh, from their perspective. So I want to welcome to the show Brian Jesse Run, managing partner of Green Valley Hospitality, which owns and operates four restaurants in eastern Connecticut, including the Vanilla Bean Cafe in Pomfret. Uh, he and his brother employ about 150 people in their Connecticut restaurants. Brian, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, some of the um, sentiment that Cheryl communicated, uh, do you share some of that, like some of the concerns uh, for your longtime employees? Well, one point that she made, and that this is something that my uh, adult full-time employer employees are concerned about, is that um, if I have to pay a high school kid $15 an hour to come in and wash dishes, that removes monies that can be going to my high-performing employees that add value and create customers Um, it takes my ability away to reward them because there's only so much money coming in the door. Um, So folks that I would want to incentivize and have continue to work for me and and reward them with raises, that pool of money shrinks. Um, So if I'm paying somebody $17 an hour, now, you know, in fairness, they have to go to 19 or 20 um, because they have so much more skill. They've been with me for such a long time that, the difference between 15 and 17 is just, you know, they're going to look at me and go, what? <laughs> so it, it removes my ability to reward my high performers. You know, so I'm calling in from eastern Connecticut, northeastern Connecticut, kind of poor relation, poor cousin up here in Wyndham County where um, you know, we have the lowest uh, mean income in the state. We average is about 60000 a year here, whereas Fairfield's over 100000 So we have a – we're a different – demographic over here and uh, you know my customers can only afford so much a lot of my customers are uh, elderly retired people who are on modest fixed incomes and um, the prices that I'm going to have to charge to support this initiative are going to come as a real shock to them. Uh, Brian, can I ask, uh, and you've been a, a business owner along with your brother for some time, when Connecticut went, I believe, from $8 in 2009 to 10 10 an hour, uh, what changes did you have to make in your business? Well, we, of course, have to raise the prices. Um, and we had to play catch-up because we couldn't do it all at once. We had to spread it out over a couple of years, and it impacted the bottom line significantly. Um, to see a 50% increase in our largest cost, which is labor, uh, over a, a four-year period is going to be a shock. And this isn't happening in a vacuum. You know, the state of Connecticut is proposing a number of other initiatives, uh, the paid family leave, all the proposed taxes in the new budget, um, uh, tolls. That increases all my costs down my supply chain. And I don't fully understand the impact of that, and I won't until it hits us. Um, so there's a, all these things are coming at us at once. If even half of this, this proposed legislation uh, is enacted, we're going to be scrambling to try to try to make this work. One, one of the reasons that Vanilla Bean and Dog Lane, now these are 
uh, fast casuals, so these are non-tipped employees, of which we have about 75 in that category, um, uh, is... Um, oh, well, do you have a specific question? Well, yeah, I do, uh, Brian. Uh, so you're talking about, you know, things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, Connecticut is surrounded by other states that are uh, looking to uh, raise their minimum wage to $15 mass by 2023. Uh, and I'm just wondering, uh, when you think about trying to get uh, skilled people to stay and continue to work for you, uh, why shouldn't Connecticut attempt to try to uh, remain competitive there? Well, there's a number of reasons. The state of Connecticut is in much worse shape than our surrounding states. We, we're essentially bankrupt, and the government is going to be aggressively trying to create revenue uh, any way they can, um, mainly through taxation and tolls and all these other initiatives. That's all going to happen at once. Um, so and in studies on minimum wage, there isn't an adequate amount of information on the impact of 15 being raised so quickly because there hasn't been enough time. Now, the states around us have enacted legislation to get to 15, but it's not there yet. The other concern is what happens when the next recession comes? Um, and we're mandated to keep raising our wage. Uh, and, and a recession is going to come. That's just the economic cycle. Well, Brian, I wanted to bring in the economist who's with us, joining us from a studio in Charlottesville, Virginia, Ben Zipperer, again, who studies the minimum wage for the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, ben, we've been able to hear from two different business owners in the state of Connecticut. How do you respond to some of their concerns? I think those are really legitimate concerns. And just picking up at the you know, the last point about, you know, how do you raise wages during a recession? And it is very difficult <clears throat> for businesses to raise wages during a recession when consumer demand is low. And that's actually precisely when you want a minimum wage increase to go into effect, because you actually want to, during a recession is precisely the time that you want to make sure that money is in the pockets of very low wage, low income individuals, because they will spend it. They will spend all of it. And that's precisely what you need during a recession. So it's not to say that, you know, raising the minimum wage to any level is easy for a business to accommodate it. Um, but it is something that businesses do accom uh, accommodate and have been able to do so by the, you know, the channels of adjustment that all of your, your, your guests talk about. Like there is a reduction in turnover, so you're able to save a little bit on turnover, so that helps adjusting to a higher minimum wage standard. And you do raise, as a business owner, you do raise prices after a minimum wage increase. So customers are paying a little more um, in order for you to afford to pay your workers more. Now, when we look at, uh, Brian is in the quiet corner, uh, the northeast part of the state. Um, is there a difference in when you look at uh, when this change is implemented, how it does impact uh, the, between a rural business versus if you're in Hartford? Right. That's a great question. So I think the the two things to keep in mind is that, you know, in, in recent studies that have looked at you know, areas with kind of lower wages and higher minimum wages so that the bite or the increase of the minimum wage is even stronger than in, say, like a high cost of living area where wages are already really high. We find that, you know, in those places, those low wage places, the minimum wage does bring about a higher uh, wage increase. But at the same time, there doesn't seem to be 
any kind of overall employment effect so that the worry that low-wage workers are going to suffer doesn't seem to really play out in higher or low-wage areas, at least in the kind of minimum wage increases that we've seen uh, in this in this country over the last um, 30 to 40 years. The other thing to keep in mind is that even in the lowest cost of living areas of the country, workers are going to need at least $15 an hour in order to make um, uh, ends meet. At the Economic Policy Institute, we have, uh, where I work, we've constructed what are called family budgets, how much a family in a given area needs in order to pay for basic expenses like housing, health care, food, transportation, and so on. And workers all across the country, in even the poorest regions of the country, if you're trying to raise a family, you're going to need at least $15 an hour in order to meet your family budget. I wanted to take some calls here on where we live as we talk about the debate to raise the minimum wage, not just in Connecticut, but in other states. Uh, Keith is calling from Preston. Keith, go ahead with your question. Oh, I didn't really have a, a question so much as, a, I guess, a comment related to the topic. Go ahead. Um, I used to write a lot of business plans for when I was in business school and and whatnot. Um, But the main catch for me that I would get with a minimum wage is that, or minimum wage increase rather, is that if if anything, the uh, the value that's provided from it shouldn't really impact the service-based industry so much because with a with a properly written business plan, there's going to be a certain amount of return on investment that's expected from each role and or position or whatever service is offered. So there's going to be a, uh, an hourly return on that on each position or expected value that's returned to the customer for it that can be accounted for. But also if you have an increase in cost for a particular type of labor, it really changes your perception of what you're going to be using that role for or what you're expecting to get out of it. So you're trying to increase more tasking for it or expand the responsibilities and roles for it. Um, and also, it offsets a lot of the um, when you when you think about a cost benefit analysis of picking up new equipment or uh, different types of technological um, opportunities that would provide for that type of service for your business. It really makes those more justifiable. And plus, instead of having a, a sunk cost in the hourly wages, you're now getting a depreciable asset that will let you benefit during your tax cycle. Well, Keith, thank you for um, bringing up, up some of those points. I wanted to go back to our economists uh, about, um, um, you had mentioned uh, before we took the caller that uh, you know $15 an hour would actually help a lot of people. But when you think about um, how much it, you, a person would need to afford uh, a house or to rent an apartment, uh, that, that hourly wage, is that even greater? Uh, yeah. I mean, just like a, you're absolutely right. Just like I mentioned earlier, um, that workers are going to need at least fifteen dollars an hour in every part of the country in order to afford their basic family budget. What I mean by that is that fifteen dollars an hour actually isn't enough for many families, especially if you're trying to raise um, kids. Uh, you know, even if you have two parents um, working and you're trying to raise a, a child, there are many areas of the country where it's impossible to uh, make ends meet even with $15 an hour. So $15 an hour or any, you know, given minimum wage that we're talking about isn't going to solve, you know, all problems, um, but it is going to be in a, a very important boost for uh, uh, workers who are earning exceptionally low wages right now. Uh, Anne's calling from Canton, and uh, we have a couple minutes left. Go ahead. 
Hi. My question is related to child care, particularly child care provided by students who college students, high school students in the summers. They usually get lower wages, but they're dependents of other people, so they don't need to pay for their own housing, et cetera. If their wages are increased to $15 an hour, then families who don't have a choice but to have child care, it's not a discretionary uh, solution like you know, going out to a restaurant, their costs are going to go up significantly. And that puts a big burden on working families if we have to pay high school students $15 an hour to provide seasonal child care. Uh, and any discussion around that? And that's a that's a good point. I know um, I have two children myself, and child care is very expensive. But one question I have, uh, uh, Ben, is when we think about the costs that we're paying for child care, um, that money doesn't trickle back down to the worker. Uh, what what do you mean? It I mean it, the hour the hourly wage. I mean it, they 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 do the work, but they're not getting paid very much when they think about the type of work they're doing. Uh, that, that's correct. I mean, we, we do, unfortunately, pay child care workers uh, in, in many parts of the country and many types of child care workers exceptionally uh, low wages. Um, but I, I don't view that as a problem of the minimum wage. I view that as a problem is that we actually need to raise wages uh, for workers that are taking care of what we value most in society, and that's our children. Uh, and then the other uh, point that Anne was making is, you know, she worries about the uh, the impact on uh, working class families who will see their child care costs grow if uh, workers are paid at least $15 an hour. Um, again, this is something that policymakers need to consider uh, as they're t- debating whether to raise the minimum wage. Oh, definitely. I think that the uh, the minimum wage is not going to solve you know every problem of affordability or even every problem of low wages in the economy and we have to absolutely complement uh, minimum wage increases with uh, ways to actually um, provide efficient and high quality uh, uh, care um, maybe that is for example uh, uh, subsidies for uh, child care or expanding access to care in a, in a way that um, actually brings the, the cost down through efficient, high-quality centers. I think there are a lot of options here, and they uh, should definitely be a complement of minimum wage proposals or any kind of uh, legislation that affects working families. I want to go back to Brian uh, Jesseron again, uh, one of uh, his restaurants uh, in the state of Connecticut, Vanilla Bean Cafe in Pomfret. Uh, Brian, uh, there's a Democratic majority in the General Assembly. Governor Lamont is backing this incremental increase of to $15 by 2023. It seems like it's going to happen as a business owner over four years. Is that enough time for you to adjust? No, I don't believe it is. Um, I believe that the sticker shock to our customer is going to be staggering. Um, with, and again, we're not in a vacuum here. We're in Connecticut. And all of the challenges that we're faced with here are just going to compound this. Um, and uh, speaking of child care, a young lady worked for me uh, years ago. She has 16 daycare centers in eastern Connecticut. And she, I was speaking with her recently. Um, daycare is a stretch for people as it is. And this is going to raise her costs dramatically. She believes that it will be unaffordable for the average uh, working family in Connecticut to afford her, her child care. Uh, and she believes she'll have to close all of her daycare. She's already closed one. Um, and I would encourage the listeners to speak to, you know, anybody, any small business that they do business with on a regular basis and ask them how they think this is going to affect them. Um, that, that's 
ultimately who pays for this is the consumer. And how much can the consumer bear? And again, rapidly raising a a significant cost like this is going to be very difficult for us to deal with. One of the reasons that our restaurants are so popular is because we, we make almost everything from scratch, you know, and there's a lot of labor that has to go to produce that. So what options do we have? So, Brian, uh, instead of four years, maybe six years, would that be it? Six years, we think we could absorb that, and that would go more in line with the rate of inflation. Um, Six years, we think we could, that would mitigate some of the impact. Uh, Four years, we think, is just too fast. Um, We would have to change our business models, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons that we are successful is because of the model, Um, and a lot of models will have to readapt. Look at at the... uh, uh, the grocery industry, look how quickly they're changing. You know, the, somebody sent me a photo just the other day of an automatic floor cleaner that Stop and Shop is using. And um, the, the uh, profitability in fast food um, is very, very low. The profitability in the independent restaurant businesses in, in America averages between 5 and 6%. And if you start shaving off two or three percentage points through this, um, it, it's... It's debilitating. And, and the fact is, an entrepreneur needs to have an initiative. And, and this is going to negate a lot of entrepreneurial incentive because the, the incentive is being compromised by this. Um, well, Brian, we thank you for joining us today to tell us about your perspective as a longtime business owner in the state of Connecticut. Brian Jesse Run, managing partner of Green Valley Hospitality, uh, one of the restaurants in eastern Connecticut that he and his brother operate, the Vanilla Bean Cafe in Pomfret. Brian, thank you. Well, thank you. I wanted to go back to our economist, uh, Ben uh, Ben Zipperer. Uh, you know, we were talking about, again, this push in different states. Uh, uh, the city of Seattle is up to $15 an hour. Uh, those studies have been done uh, looking at uh, the impact uh, there. Um, and they've also conflicted, uh, and uh, the economists have changed uh, their original uh, uh outcome that they said that a lot of these, um, the $15 wage when it went up, that uh, there were less jobs, uh, but there are other factors in play, including other things happening in the uh, Seattle economy, uh, less low-wage jobs that are available. So I'm just wondering, as we continue to talk about ways to uh, change this, uh, whether it's in our state or nationwide, uh, what should policymakers be looking at? Should it be pegged to cost of living? Oh, I, I think... Uh Increasing the minimum wage along with the cost of living is an excellent idea, and it's actually something that a lot of places um, already have started doing. Um, It would be nice if that were happening at the the federal or national level so that we wouldn't have this kind of falling value of the minimum wage that we talked about earlier, that as the cost of living goes up, as wages go up, as productivity rises in the economy, that the minimum wage just stays stagnant and falls further behind. But instead, um, legislation in a number of places, including nationally, but um, also I think in in, in Connecticut, if I'm I'm correct, um, is interested in not only raising the minimum wage, but kind of keeping it at that level through automatic 
regular predictable increases in the future by tying you know, each annual increase to how much inflation went up or how much wages went up over the prior year. So this kind of indexing of the minimum wage is becoming more common and is a way to provide very predictable and regular increases uh, so that both workers and employers are, are moderately aware of what kind of increases they can expect at the minimum wage. I think that's a good place to end. Uh, We could keep talking about this, but we appreciate your perspective. Again, uh, Ben Zipperer, an economist who studies the minimum wage for the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, uh, D.C. Ben, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what do Connecticut and New Hampshire have in common? They have the lowest hourly minimum wage in our region. We're going to get some perspective from the New England News Collaborative after the break, and you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now, there are a couple of minimum wage bills before the Connecticut General Assembly's Labor Committee this session. And while state lawmakers debate whether to raise the rate to $15 an hour, there's other states in our region, Massachusetts, New York, that have already passed minimum wage laws. To see where they stand in studio with me now is John Dankowski, editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of Next, a weekly podcast. John, welcome back. Thank you so much, Lucy. So you've been uh, looking uh, at the region uh, for some time. Uh, where does Connecticut stand in, in, with our neighbors? Well, Connecticut's sort of right in the middle of things. As a matter of fact, Connecticut was the first to really react to President Obama when he gave a speech in 2014 saying that he wants to raise the minimum wage to 1010. Connecticut was the first state to say, yes, we're going to do that. But it took them a while to actually implement the wage. They voted for the wage increase in 2014, but then it didn't take effect for another couple of years. A few other states jumped past us just to quickly go through. Rhode Island right now is at $10.50 an hour at the start of last year. Uh, Maine is at $11 an hour, and they're going to be increasing a little bit over time, another dollar next year, and then tied to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which I know something you were talking about over the course of the, the first part of the show. Vermont, which we'll probably come back to, has everything tied to CPI. They're at $10.78 uh, this year. That's a strange uh, hourly rate. It's a strange <laughs> hourly rate, and it's it's due to the fact that they wanted to tie to inflation. Um, Massachusetts, of course, in our region is the one that's jumped forward. They're at $12 an hour starting just this year, but over the course of the next few years, they're going to be raising up to $15 an hour starting in January of 2023. So that's a little bit of what's happening uh, across the region. Outside of New England, New York is really interesting because they've got this kind of bifurcated or maybe trifurcated system where there's... Uh, There's a rate for New York City that's already in place at $15 an hour. Another one for smaller employers in New York City. And the rest of the state is going to slowly ramp up to $15 over time. But that, I think, speaks to the fact that New York is really different than any other state in the nation. It has this, you know, big place, New York City, with very high wages and very high costs, and then a gigantic rest of the state that operates much more like, a, in some cases, a Vermont or New Hampshire or Connecticut. I'm wondering how uh, New York City, uh, with what they pay uh, minimum wage workers, how that impacts Stanford or Darien. Do we know? You know, it's, it's really interesting. It's not entirely clear yet how that works and how that will work over the course of time. What I will say is I haven't heard very much from state lawmakers in Connecticut talking about a system like that for Connecticut, but 
anybody who looks at the economics of Fairfield County understands that it's one of the highest wage and also highest cost place to live in the entire country. An argument could be made that a living wage in Stamford Greenwich is a much different thing than a living wage in Pomfret, the, where we were talking to the business owner earlier in the program or in Hartford. And I think that's something that Connecticut might need to or want to think about as it's going forward legislatively to sort of uh, jibe with what New York has already done. I was interested in Massachusetts uh, uh, policy where they're looking to raise it to over five years and Connecticut's four years. We heard from the business owner, Brian Jesserin, that says even if Connecticut were to try to do it in six years, that would be more palatable for him and um, his establishments. Yeah, I think that the the plan in Massachusetts to raise it uh, to $15 over five years was put into place in large part because there are economic conditions in Massachusetts, specifically in the greater Boston area, that are quite a bit different than in most of Connecticut. Obviously, greater Boston has seen an economic boom, very high wages, very high job growth. It's the only real place where you're seeing people uh, flow into our region as opposed to flowing out in all the other states. And so the Massachusetts plan to do over five years, it seems uh, pretty aggressive, but it's also more in line with the economics, I think, right now of that state. Um, Your reporters have talked to uh, their governors in their states. What about in Vermont? Like, what has the governor been saying there? So Vermont's really interesting. As I mentioned, Vermont a couple years ago passed a minimum wage law that is tied to the CPI. And right now it's at 1078 an hour. Phil Scott, who is a Republican, and he just served his first term, got reelected for a second term. He vetoed an earlier attempt to raise the wage up to $15 an hour. He was asked about this actually at a candidate forum when he was running for reelection last time. And here's a little bit of what he had to say. When I was in the Senate, we passed a minimum wage increase. I remember that distinctly. And I remember somebody getting up on the floor and saying, if we pass this minimum wage, if we increase the minimum wage right now with a cost of living increase, We'll never have to have this debate again. Well, here we are. We're having the debate debate again. And I think, Lucy, that that's a lot of what you might hear from Republican lawmakers in a state like Connecticut. If they say, okay, maybe we don't want to get to $15 an hour, but we want to tie it to a CPI, raise it up to a certain level higher, the argument is we're taking care of it now and we don't have to come back for a long time. But then as soon as maybe Democrats have a little bit more political power, whether it's in the state house in Connecticut or in Montpelier, you, you end up going back and asking for a higher wage. That's exactly what's likely to happen in Vermont this time around because uh, Democrats made gains in the state house. It's probably likely to $15 an hour minimum wage will uh, come up again, and Governor Scott might not be able to veto it this time. Uh, there's the argument to be made that, you know, we were thinking back to when we first had our minimum wage jobs when I was in high school. Uh, but at the same time, should policymakers be doing a better job attracting types of, of jobs to the state that pay people good living wages where you're not just thinking about uh, the minimum wage worker that's getting $10 an hour? You know, I, I think an, that's been an awful lot of the economic policy argument that's happened around projects like the the first five that Governor Malloy put into place, or even different states battling to try to attract the Amazon HQ2. When you try to attract jobs that are going to make somewhere around $100,000 a year, or you put a little bit of money at, say, a big hedge fund, as Connecticut has in the past, to attract jobs that are a million dollars a year, it's different than attracting more lower-wage jobs. But I, I, will, I will note something. The Maine Center for Economic Policy looked pretty closely at what happened in the early days of Maine raising its minimum wage. 
a couple of years back, and again, theirs is going up over the course of time for the next few years, they've said there's not been this decline in the total number of jobs mm -hmm. that many people had uh, thought was going to be the outcome. They have not seen people getting the number of hours cut. And they are actually, the main Center for Economic Policy is saying it's, it's helped lift about 10,000 Maine children out of poverty because the dollars that are spent at the lower end of the spectrum mean an awful lot more. The differential between somebody who makes $200,000 a year and $250,000 a year doesn't mean the same as the difference between somebody who makes $30,000 a year and thirty-five. dollars uh, We love the work of sociologist Matthew Desmond, which we'll tweet out a link at where we live, where he's talking about the, even the consequences on someone's health when they're able to get a couple more dollars an hour and how that does have ripple effects on their family, their children. Uh, before we go, uh, John, so in Connecticut, Connecticut, again, uh, there's a Democratic uh, majority. Governor Lamont is behind this proposal. Is this a done deal? I don't know that it's a done deal. I, one thing I've noticed over the course of many years of covering the state legislature and watching politics here is everything needs a certain amount of time to bubble up, as they say, right? A plan gets, gets put forward and maybe three or four or five or seven years down the line, eventually it becomes law. We've been talking about a higher minimum wage for some time, but Connecticut already raised its minimum wage to $10.10 an hour. As we've already heard, many people in the business community are saying this is not the time to impose additional uh, burdens on the business community because we don't want to see them flay. So I think it'll be a little bit more of a battle, perhaps, than some people might think, given the stronger Democratic majority than we've had in the past. John Dankowski, editor of the New England News Collaborative, also host of the weekly podcast Next. You can check out their great website. We'll tweet it out uh, for all of the collaborative stories about the minimum wage and other things happening in our region. John, thanks so much. Always good to be here, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to our WNPR intern, Seth Blair on the phones today, and our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. And if you're going to be down in New London, uh, come visit the Where We Live team. We're going to be there from 11:30 until one. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, thanks for listening, and check out Washington Street Coffee House in New London. <laughs>